Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-host, second year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hey, guys. Third year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Edgar Ortega. Hi, Edgar. Hello, Dr. Parks. Third year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Saloni Singh. Hi, Saloni. Hi, Dr. Parks. And second year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Top of the evening to you, Dr. Parks. <laughs> the views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on today's show, we're going to, this, this is the last show of the year, but on today's show, we're going to talk about cults, um, psychological aspects, people that are vulnerable to cults. Um, this is the last show of the year. Uh, I, it's it's great that it's the last, this, this year is coming to an end. Hopefully there's good things coming. Uh, but one thing I want to kind of clear up, I would like you all for this new year, starting starting today, really tonight, is to call me by my first name, Aaron. Are you, are you able to do that? I know you call me Dr. Parks. I started as a faculty yeah. member. I knew you all as students. I would right. say students, people that need knowledge, and I'm going to give you that knowledge. I, I You would call me doctor uh, all the time, but you, are you okay with that, calling me Aaron? Yeah, I think that's that's awesome. Most people call me Aaron, by the way. But Why? You, Why Aaron? Because it's easier for them, and they don't know what they are reading when they see Aaron. But it's Aaron. It's Aaron, right? Aaron. It's one syllable. That's right. <laughs> it's like you're making fun of it right now, Tosh. I take it back. I take it back. Go back to talk to I think I literally have never called you by your first name. <laughs> well, well now this is tonight's the night of first. Night of first. Awesome. All right. And, all right. But and no, one, yes. one, of the, one of the things I want to say is we um, decided to make this change. Be, well, we were brought, we were made aware of this discrepancy and how confusing it is um, thanks to listener feedback and i want to make a shout out to the listeners you know we've been following um our statistics on anchor and it's really exciting i mean we have a lot most of our listeners are in california um but we've got listeners across the u.s i think like the highest uh state representation is california washington and ohio um but we even have foreign listeners um and the most represented countries right now are mexico and ireland so thanks guys happy <laughs> happy holidays happy new year I, I think i know a few people in mexico who kind of like to listen all your relatives you your do, relatives so. or friends <laughs> yeah some friends actually that really like it I'm glad nice. thank you nice. listeners so let's talk about cults. First of all, let's kind of define cults because cults has been kind of thrown around a little bit uh, and, you know, talking about Trump's followers as cult members. But what is the actual, does anyone have a definition of, of, of what I, a cult is? Yeah, I, I, can, I can start with that. And just by the way, just as a disclosure, if you hear background like music, it's because I'm recording from my place, which is in downtown Riverside. So I don't have control over the people who are downstairs playing Christmas music and other things. But... Anyways, on that note, Duly yes, noted. festive. Yeah, it, it is, and it's, it's it's charming. It's you know, even if things with COVID are not the best, you still see that some of that joy from Christmas, which is my the best time of the year for me. In my I really opinion. appreciate your Santa hat too, Edgar. For all those listeners, um, you're really missing out on Edgar's Santa hat. Yeah, I wish we had a video too recording, but yeah, so I just yeah. decided to wear it because why not? It's almost the end of the year. It's the 
the holidays are like this Christmas, New Year time is the best for me. Is the best time, so、mm. why not? But going, thank you for that, Tosha. And going back to the definition of what is a cult. So it, it kind of started by、uh, Sigmund Freud, and he kind of defined it in terms of religion as religion is an illusion, and it derives its strength from the fact that it falls in. With our instinctual desires, that's kind of like more or less the, where a lot of this definition or trying to define what is a cult happen. And then over time, it, it evolved. So a better definition would be something like it's a social group that is defined by unusual either religion, but not only religion, maybe spiritual, philosophical beliefs, or other common interests in a particular personality, object, or goal. And if we even want to be a little more.、Um, There's different types that we're going to talk about it, but in terms of what we focus a lot is destructive cult, and that describes、uh, the use of in these groups of manipulative techniques and mind control techniques to kind of work on suggestibility and subservience from the person or the people who are joining this cult. Yeah, and I guess like the、uh, the ultimate kind of example of that was in 1978, where the People's Temple. Um, followers, nine over nine hundred members, killed themselves, and, and over three hundred were children in Guyana. And you know, since then there have been cults where people have killed themselves because of their beliefs or because of the followers have directed them to do that. It seems like it's gone down, though.、Uh, but I don't know. Has 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 cults have cults morphed into something different now? It seems like there were a lot of religious kind of wild cults and. You know, you know, cults where yeah, they led to suicide. I, I feel like、um, those cults that show up on the newspapers, like in the newspapers, they're they have a different flavor now. And I don't know if people are just more wary in general because of the publicity that those,、um, you know, such like the the cult that you were talking about. Aaron,、um, the publicity that they got, maybe people are just more wary of cults now. But I think the they become more nuanced, more subtle,、um, and they sell themselves like Nexium, for instance. They sell themselves more as a personal success program. I think it's interesting how cults have had to navigate the World Wide Web taking everything over and sort of. Everything being able to be caught on a on a camera and publicized, I think it's probably a lot harder to have viewpoints that are would just be clearly seen as manipulative by the public, and you have to kind of dress things up a little bit more cl- cleverly if you're going to use manipulation、mm-hmm. tactics and try to gain new people in a way that could be glimpsed by the web.、Mm. And in order to, I, I kind of talk about the definition, but I think Alan or somebody else, you guys come up some of the characteristics of what a cult is looking to do, like how does it work, what what it, what defines more, or what sort of things they do in order for that to be considered as a cult. Do you have anything on that, Alan? You know, I so sorry to interrupt, but、oh, I was、Tosha. just thinking about this the other day when we were talking to、um, Dr. Jamie Woods, and I was talking about that movie I had seen,、um, which now I'm blanking on, Boy Erased, the one on the、um, conversion therapy 
that memoir, the movie based on, on the memoir, and I was talking about how it was so surprising to me how uh, the program, at the same time that they were shaming him for being heterosexual, I mean, homosexual, they were also saying at the same time, we love you, we accept you, all this stuff. And I feel like that seemed very cultish to me. This, um, you know, shaming and at this, like this moral shaming. And then also at the same time, like we will help you, we will save you from this evil place where you're at. I think that's one of the ways cults operate. Toja, let's 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 be intellectually honest with ourselves here though. I mean, I don't know about you, but I do that all the time with both patients and loved ones, right? You, you when you want to correct someone's behavior, you're usually trying to do it in a way that doesn't provoke defensiveness and one of the ways to do I mean, you know, it's as famous as the compliment sandwich, right? I love you, but you're sucking at this, but I love you. But do you say that what they're doing is morally reprehensible? No, because we're more sophisticated in our manipulation practices than that, and we're and we like to think we're non-judgmental. But when you come in and you have a patient who's um, engaging in domestic violence or something like that, it's they probably know that what you that you might think they're morally reprehensible based on a a slight micro expression in your lip or something like that. I think that's a good distinction though. I mean, some of these tactics might have a surface kind of similarity with some of the things that we do, but I mean, what what is the ultimate end? And, you know, is there are you preserving are you caring about choice? Um, you know, I think that a lot of the kind of influence uh, uh, techniques or methods or interventions, whatever you want to call them, that clinicians use. I feel like uh, you know things like motivational interviewing, for example. They they're trying to maximize uh, choice. They're trying to reinforce that you have a choice. Um, but I do feel like periodically with uh, some folks that I can tell that because of my position, they I do feel like I can wield undue influence on certain clients, and I I try to be sensitive enough that I notice that like they'll they'll be, they'll follow my everything that I suggest, and they 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 almost uh, and they'll be a little bit more kind of almost obsequious sometimes that they feel like they kind of try to ingratiate their, themselves with me, and I feel like um, I hope I catch that enough because then I feel like I start uh, backing away and trying to make it uh, back to more mutuality. But have it have do so you're you, saying it, like as a leader they look up to you? I think the distinction about like what Alan was talking about is I think the the what I would say is in cults oftentimes there's a moral guide that they look at and that's how they base whether someone is good or bad whereas in therapy I think it's always taught um you know decisions are decisions and you're you're not supposed to be making judgments on those decisions you know people are making the best decision for with the information and skills they have at that time. I, I find that, Tosh, I, I, I think that's such an important guiding principle of therapy. And yet I think particularly in psychiatry and in medicine, that is so far from the truth. I think we are we are such a, a judgmental field. 
and we pass judgment on we're we're trained to pass judgment on so many things and we have studies that that equip us to pass judgment we can say well actually the studies show that your use of cannabis is not working with for you at all and here's how and we can talk about you know the patient comes in and says i'm using cannabis to help my anxiety help my sleep and help me focus at school and we say in some subtle way we say boom you're wrong on all those you know and 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 that extends to almost every i mean and and, and our our um institution also has a, a history of just following society's judgments right so like homosexuality used to be it went a, a psychiatric disease and then when society kind of realized that homosexuality is uh just another form of love that exists it stopped being a, a psychiatric disease but we've been very willing to use the judgments of society in our work. Um, and it might even be necessary, right? Do it you might feel even like, like... Do, Alan, do you feel like psychiatrists uh, uh, abuse their power in some ways do, by, by enforcing norms, uh, maybe without research, uh, because they feel like there's a good end to it? I've worried that I do. And, and I can say that I'm, I'm open and I've been open in my clinical supervisions about even from the time before when I was doing CBT, before I would change careers, that I really value the ability to mold people. And I like working with kids. I like working with sexual assault survivors because I, I, a part of it is I like being able to mold them to be advocates and to, to, um, to share that same passionate anger of instead of blaming themselves about being a survivor and having gone through this of of really understanding that this is in no universe your fault and that there are there's this culture that this is okay and that culture is not okay and it needs to be changed and and for me i get this sense of fulfillment like i'm empowering people to change the world but it aligns with an agenda that i have and how i want to see the world i'm also recommending nature to people my research is on nature-based therapy there's a very transparent pseudo-political agenda that my work espouses and there's a reason i'm going to work in california you know I think it is different from psychiatrist to psychiatrist because I have noticed, Alan, the way that you practice is more paternalistic and mine is, um, sorry, I'm just blanking today. I think I'm tired, guys. But <laughs> Partnership we've talked about this before. Happens. Yes, Oops. thank you. I give the patient as much autonomous as okay. I can, uh, autonomy as I can, really. I have noticed that that is a difference in the way we practice. So maybe I... Maybe it's just different person to person. I, you're right. Like historically, there has been a lot of judgment, as there has been in all sorts of medicine, and that I think is inherent when we are being paid to give advice. You know, our advice is medical, um, and not I. You know, I s- still would argue our advice isn't moralistic, um, but ours has to do with what damage is being done and your mental health or physical health, and then what do you want to do about it? Like harm reduction, for instance, would be a, a good example of how we've made some progress in that area of turning addiction uh, less of a moral judgment on on a person's character. But um, I, it's an interesting conversation, and I'm glad you bring it up, Ellen. 
If you're just listening to us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking about cults and also the undue influence of psychiatry. Uh, you know, this is something, I, let me try to kind of swing this back to what we were uh, originally th- talking about, where, you know, the Church of Scientology is very suspicious of psychiatrists. L. Ron Hubbard, comes from L. Ron Hubbard, was very suspicious of psychiatrists and the, the power that they had. Um, so, I mean, it's, 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 you know, there's a lot of uh, blowback that came from, you know, the abuses of power early on. From in psychiatry and, and psychology, mm-hmm. psychologists. I think a lot but, of it. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think one of the characteristics also of a cult is there's exploitation of the members of the cult. The leader exploits the, the members of the cult, whether it's financially or um, through sex, something like that. There's got to be a level of exploitation happening. And, and, and also, you know, us being part of the medical field uh, to draw on both Aaron and Tosha's points here I think it's it's good fun and it's good exercise for us to draw um our, the similarities and criticize ourselves and medicine is a rich field because we're into criticizing ourselves but I wouldn't actually honestly say that there's there's a real comparison there and because here we are, I just got a learning point from Tosha and, and I'm working on that. I'm, you know, I'm working on whether my practice with children could be less paternalistic. Um, cults are not working on how to be more intellectually honest. They're not examining themselves. There's an authoritarian leader who has gleaned a thing or two about psychological manipulation strategies and is using them without the goal of leading the patient to their own best destiny. They're leading the patient to their chosen best destiny. Um, So really very little there. And Scientology feeling threatened by psychiatry is because we offer a solution to mental health that doesn't require exclusivity and that doesn't require ultimate allegiance. Um, and I'm pretty comfortable saying not the same. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's good to think about how, you know, if I want to turn to a little bit to recovery from cults is that, you know, like you were saying, Alan, there's some sort of thought control. And then so recovery would involve uh, a, a assistance with modifying those that belief system. And now, now whose beliefs are going to be, uh, how do you do that? Like, how, how do you change, help someone change their beliefs from the thought control and the uh, cult-dominated belief system to something that y- you feel, basically, the clinician that's working with them, you feel is more realistic, more healthy. So you absolutely, I'm sure that would involve your own values and it, it would, it would, your own personal uh, uh, idea of what is a healthy person. And you're just basically replacing your own values with, with some of the cult values. And our values are influenced by a lifetime of study of what's actually best for the patient. So our, our values are flexible. They're yeah. often in flux based on research. And, you know, that's totally not the case for the cults that we've done our And I, I would on. say that, you know, a lot of this uh, sounds very similar to what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is cognitive therapy, where it's a systematic way of changing and altering people's beliefs so that they're uh, more realistic, they they represent their own values. I feel like then th- another difference is that you want to make the you want to help the person identify beliefs that they truly believe in and that represents what they what uh, shares their experience, their knowledge about you know bad experiences in the cult, but also even before the cult. So there's a lot of uh, another thing about recovery is unmet personal needs. So how can you help this person develop? Uh, skills, habits, abilities, relationships where they can get some of these personal needs met outside of a cult environment. I think that's a good segue um, 
everyone into this article that I read. Um, it was from 2013 and it was basically, um, it was in Australia. So it's a little, obviously it's a different society than ours, but it's not incredibly different. It's still a Western society that's quite individualistic. Um, and basically they were analyzing people who had gone through cults um, and like come out the other end, basically no, no longer were in them. And, and, you know, obviously this was basic, this was post hoc, but still they were trying, trying to talk to them and figure out like, what was it that drew them to the cult? Mm -hmm. And um, obviously most of us think, okay, people that are prone to brainwashing, right? Like that's, that's the intuitive answer to that question. Um, whether that's true or not, that is not how the, the participants of the study described it. They actually said that they were really, it was uh, usually very personal, uh, personally negotiated and motivated by a desire for stronger social connections, mm. albeit for different reasons for each of them. For some of them, the desire for social connectedness was related to a strong need for guidance and direction from stable, quote unquote, stable others. And for others, it was a desire for self-change or self-enhancement. And basically the, the paper goes on to analyze that what you see in common and, and, and it does line up with the people that would be, you know, what you like, what you would think that would be prone to brainwashing. You see this huge commonality among people who are cult members, which is that many of them join cults at a young age following a turbulent adolescence. Um, and like I said, this is in Australia, but I think it's definitely applicable here. And basically this idea is that, you know, when you have this uncertainty about your identity, which is often because of misshapen bonds when you were growing up, um, you know, basically unhealthy relationships with your immediate family members and your primary caregivers, basically what we would call emotional trauma, right, related to relationships. Um, these are the types of people that are drawn to cults. Um, they have this uncertainty about their own identity and um, they have what one of my other uh, therapy advisors calls a weak I, I being the, you know, um, the pronoun. So they have like a weak sense of self. And so they join this cult for this all encompassing identity that gives them. And the important thing is that they, they, they analyzed 11 different cults and 23 different members from 11 different cults in Australia. Wow. And yeah, and it basically came down to, it doesn't really matter what the nature of the identity is. That's truly unimportant. It's as long as the identity is unambiguous, because mm -hmm. that is what a lot of these people are looking for is mm -hmm. this unambigu unambiguity regarding their sense of self, um, which is, you know, all they've known is um, ambiguity before that and trauma. And so that was just a really interesting um, way to look at, you know, the kind of characteristics that draw people. It's like cults. grounding, grounding of a personality or identity. Yeah. And it's like, they didn't have that, you know, they were, in, they had some misdevelopment or whatever, social misdevelopment growing up. And now they're, they're kind of drawn to this. And uh, I wanted to talk uh, just really briefly TED talk that I that I listened to the other day of this uh, young man who had joined the neo-Nazi movement and he joined when he was about 14 or 15 years old so he was you know he was an adolescent and he'd had a very difficult childhood and basically he was a child of immigrants who loved him very much and he never doubted that his uh, family loved him but they didn't really have any time for him because they were working constantly and so he was essentially neglected when he was 14 or 15 and he had lacked this parental 
you know, input, oversight, even though he knew his parents loved him, he started getting involved in um, these hate groups, uh, you know, white power movement, neo-Nazi groups, because it gave him this, it basically gave him this sense of identity that he was, that he was lacking, even though he had no, like, actual, didn't actually harbor any anti, you know, uh, Judaism views or any, he didn't even, he hadn't even met a Jewish person before. Um, until, you know, I mean, he never, I don't think he had met a Jewish person until he joined this neo-Nazi um, white power, what I would call a cult, because they had him um, sever his ties with his family, you know, his friends, everyone outside of the cult. And, um, and, and, and he got out of this cult. And the reason he got out is um, because he fell in love with a woman who he together. And when he held his child for the first time, he felt like he had to reimagine his identity. Was he going to be this, you know, Judaism hating hate monger or was he going to be a caring father and husband? Hate monger seems easier. Definitely easier. <laughs> so I think a lot of our country, uh, actually, never mind. I'll leave that to Aaron to talk about. Yeah, for, oh, for sure I'm going to say something. No, I feel like you know, the way you put it, Saloni, I really kind of felt the appeal of that. Yeah, you have this uh, these cognitive, emotional, kind of personal needs of purpose and clarity. And then also you have this joint connection with other people that believe similarly so clearly and unambiguously. And then you're just all moving and doing uh, these these activities. It's like the mobilization of war, the hyping up, the nationalization, having a common enemy and a shared goal. And ain't that that's what uh, sorry, go for it. Feeling passionate every day of your life to, 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 to know what you need to do. Yeah. So I think that's what leaders of these cults are very smart about predating or looking at the victims who are more vulnerable like in all those characteristics that you said, Saloni. And, and at the end, yes, it's about giving them a sense of uh, identity, a sense of recovering some of that power uh, in society, uh, the identity. And also even that sometimes when it's about these cults on, on hate, it's even about revenge, like offering them the opportunity to have revenge on the world that has failed at them and and you know and, and that's what these people are really good at doing at recruiting people like that at um giving them like unconditional love and, and then also isolate them from 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 communities and and really promote this sometimes even depriving them from food and, and other sensory inputs to kind of like make it almost a dissociative state or kind of shape that uh, identity, especially when someone is going through something that it's, you know, a period of time that's difficult. I think, yeah, I think that that's a great point you bring up, Edgar, about revenge um, that I didn't think about. And actually this, um, this uh, gentleman that got out of the neo-Nazi group did talk about that, that he was a very angry, young teenage man. And he was angry at his parents for the neglect and, you know, he sort of resented them. Um, and this was this outlet for his anger. And I did want to say that the follow-up to the weak eye is that you find your, your, instead of your finding a strong eye, you find a strong we, which is, I think what Tosho is referring to as well with the mobilization and hyping up, like similarly with what we do in war, where we create this common enemy. Um, but also that means a lot of cults are isolating because in order for there to be a we, there has to be a them as well. Mm-hmm. And there has to be an everybody else that's not part of the cult. In the case of the neo-Nazi group, obviously, it's any, everyone who's not white. But 
Also, in the case of the the neo-Nazi group, I think ain't that so satisfyingly human to... I mean, they have an extra thing going there. They have hatred, which is addictive, unifying, uh, kind of satisfying to the adrenal, you know, um, kind of adrenal consistent level of stimulation that we in our current society kind of are always looking for. You know, the the whole time that whether whichever side of you're on the of the political debate you're on, the whole time that Donald Trump was president, everyone was Googling it every 10 minutes. Right. And there was just this addiction that was fueled by this easy hatred. It's simple and it's it's easier than the complexities of our life to focus on. Imagine being in a cult where your only job was to, to hate. Yeah, everything clarity of purpose, definitely. And that's definitely something that. Um seems true of, of of trump yeah there's a there's a comp there's a clear enemy there's a clear purpose there's a clear grievance yeah i wanted to bring up one point before we close um okay. i read something about deprogramming so from this in the 60s to the 80s um you could pay someone to go into a cult and abduct your family member or your loved one from the cult and then bring them back to the family um but now it's illegal this practice is now illegal and someone actually successfully sued his deprogrammer up in washington in 55 no wow. sorry not 55 95 wow yeah, yeah. cautionary tale be careful about how you help people that yeah, kind of destroys my career plans. <laughs> <laughs> That's the last joke of 2020 for us. Uh, that'll do it. Uh, we, today we discussed cults. We also talked a little bit about our personal, our influences as psychiatrists and psychologists. Thank you to our co-hosts, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi, Dr. Saloni Singh, Dr. Edgar Ortega, and Dr. Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucrgmail.com. That's getpsychedonkucrgmail.com. And you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. This episode was recorded in each of our respective homes and then mixed by our producer at KUCR, Elliot Fong. So special thanks go out to him. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Let's get psyched.